On this week's episode of Understanding Immigration, guest workers. You know, why is the Trump administration looking to import more foreign guest workers at a time where the country has record unemployment and really no large need for these services? Year in and year out, H2B guest workers are consistently paid less than Americans doing the same jobs. And it's got so bad that the U.S. Department of Labor official who was actually in charge of the program once called it a form of legalized slavery. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the fifth episode of the Understanding Immigration Podcast presented by FAIR. This is Preston Hennikins, joined as always by Spencer Rayleigh from our research department and Matthew Tregesser from our media team. Due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, we're still recording this podcast remotely, uh, but we continue to strive to educate you, our listeners, on high-profile topics in the immigration sphere during these crazy times. Today, we're talking about guest workers. What are they, what role they play in our economy, and what the future of these visa programs might be. So Spencer, we'll go ahead and start with you. What's the history of guest workers in the United States, and how are these programs used today? Thanks, Preston. The history of uh, guest workers in the United States really officially goes back to 1917 and the passage of the Immigration Act of 1917. And in that bill, there was a provision that would grant entry to temporary workers from Western Hemisphere nations who would otherwise be considered inadmissible. And that provision could be activated by the Secretary of Labor. So right after this bill was passed, uh, they went ahead and activated that under a program that was called the Bracero Program, and what it did is it allowed uh, Mexican individuals over the age of 16 who could not read, which would have otherwise uh, disqualified from them for admission, to come into the United States and work primarily in uh, ag businesses and uh, industries that were suffering because a lot of the young men in the United States were overseas fighting in World War One. So that's really how the official guest worker program started in the United States. And, you know, just from the get-go, these things were just wrought with lots of problems. Measures were put in place to ensure that um, these migrants who came over temporarily would return home, but they weren't ever really enforced for the most part. So you would have migrants that would start to abuse these temporary programs as an avenue to come to the United States without any intention of leaving. And employers would use it, much like a lot of employers unfortunately use it today, as an opportunity to underpay workers and force them to work in unacceptable conditions since they weren't legally allowed to go anywhere else to work or if they got fired, they were at risk of being sent home. And it's got so bad that the U.S. Department of Labor official who was actually in charge of the program once called it a form of legalized slavery. So that's, that's really the roots, and it, it didn't really have a good start from the get-go. But over time, this, this uh, exception was put into place. I believe during World War II, there was a second Mexican labor program that was launched that lasted for decades. And it got to the point where depressed wages, especially in the southwest United States, to the point that citizen farm workers couldn't even compete anymore. So that launched into what the Department of Labor called the adverse effect wage rate, which was supposed to uh, ensure that employers paid foreign workers at least the going market rate for employment, even though they have always found ways around that. 
And eventually it led to the programs that we're really familiar with today, the H1 and H2 programs. And those were officially codified in the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, uh, which created the H-2 program, which was supposed to be primarily to admit temporary agricultural workers in times that they're needed. And uh, the most common one for that was the H-2A program, which is still used excessively today. In fact, by 1969, a little over a decade after it was founded, there were more than 70,000 of these visas being granted every year. Uh, another one that ended up becoming extremely heavily used it was the H-2B visa, which really was just intended to be to help some small areas uh, that were non-agricultural but had a labor shortage of skilled labor. But of course, that has bloomed into something that uh, still today has 80 to 85,000 visas approved every year. That's the issue with these programs is that they've really ballooned. Um, since they were initially put in place. And a lot of these were seen as really band-aid solutions to temporary labor market issues, particularly in agriculture. A lot of people kind of thought, well, you know, we'll bring in some of these, you know, migrant farm workers, but this, this won't be the norm. You know, eventually people will come back and come back to these jobs. And similar with, with the H-2B, the non-skilled, non-agricultural worker programs, and they've just ballooned. They've, they've kind of gotten out of control. And so, Matthew, that's kind of something that's been in the news recently is some of the issues with these programs as they exist today. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security rolled back an H-2B visa extension uh, over concerns about the sharp rise in unemployment due to the coronavirus and at the same time, the State Department waived a lot of the requirements for H-2 guest workers, which makes it easier for them to come to the country. Uh, what's going on here? Right. So these were two massive head-scratching moves uh, initiated by two separate agencies under the Trump administration in recent weeks. Um, as you mentioned, the Department of Homeland Security rolled back an H-2B extension. And as we mentioned previously, the H-2B visas are visas given to low-skilled workers in industries like hospitality and uh, restaurants and kind of anything, but that's not agricultural. And so originally, the Department of Homeland Security was going to add 35,000 H-2B visas on top of uh, 66,000 approved for next year. But there's such outcry and such opposition to this, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Chad Wolf uh, decided not to do that and just stick with the 66,000. And similar to DHS, uh, the State Department recently waived the interview component of its H-2 application program. Uh, and they cited that, you know what, we need to bring in these H-2 ag workers quicker into the country because of the coronavirus outbreak. And they generally suggested that there is potential for food insecurities on uh, farms and agricultural shortages. So we need to streamline the process uh, for these H2 workers uh, to the best of uh, to the best of their ability. So the big takeaway from both of these is, you know, why is the Trump administration looking to import more foreign guest workers at a time where the country has record unemployment and really no large need for these services? And as we all seen in the news uh, earlier this month, uh, it was uh, one particular week more than 3 million, 3 million Americans filed for unemployment. And this was a one-week record set uh, since 1982. So it goes to show you that at, at a time when we're having unprecedented 
unemployment. The agencies under the Trump administration are trying to import more foreign cheap labor. And it's just head scratching, to say the least. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because, you know, the Department of Homeland Security had really pushed back against uh, rescinding this visa extension. Um, It's something that has happened every year uh, since fiscal year 2017, where Congress has allowed uh, they've essentially kind of passed the buck to the department because they don't have the political courage to actually expand the program themselves, but they allow the secretary to add essentially up to an additional 66000 on top of the 66000 cap. So they had announced that they were going to do this 35000 increase. And then even as the unemployment rate began to rise and, and businesses began to shutter, and frankly, a lot of these businesses that were closing were the ones that were using H2B workers to begin with, restaurants, uh, landscapers, you know, kind of these, a lot of these businesses that really had to shut down um, due to the coronavirus restrictions. And people were looking around and saying, why on earth would we import these thousands of workers um, when, first of all, there might not be any jobs for them? And second of all, right. when there are, you know, like you said, millions of people out of work and looking for work, it's not like they're sitting on their butts doing nothing. Yeah. And really what it comes down to is, You have to look at it from a perspective of there are still a lot of businesses out there, even in a time of crisis, that are looking for cheap labor, that are looking for a way to pad their profit margin so they don't want to pay a going market rate, which is why they're still calling for increases in temporary labor, even though there are, as Matthew noted, millions and millions of Americans right now that are having to file for unemployment because of the uh, pandemic going on. Right. It just makes no sense, too, with all these industries shut down and Americans staying at home with stay-at-home orders. And why why does the country need more of these workers? I mean, it's obviously DHS backtracked from that, but even the thought of hiring you know, tens of thousands of more people at a time where everything is shut down. I mean, it's it's just extremely just unbelievable. And particularly with the H-2B program um, and, and a smaller extent, the H-2A program, these are visa programs that are notorious for being abused by employers who use them. Um, they're a great set of studies from both the Economic Policy Institute and the Center for Immigration Studies uh, that show that year in and year out, um, H-2B uh, guest workers are consistently paid less than Americans doing the same jobs. Um, and people kind of look around and say, why is this happening? And it's happening because employers uh, obviously are trying to cut costs on, on overhead. And they're also, they really like the idea of having temporary workers, workers who they don't have to pay for the full year and they don't have to treat well and they don't have to give extended benefits um, because, you know, an American might complain about terrible working conditions or, you know, not being paid the correct wage and things like this. Whereas, you know, a guest worker who is sending, you know, by and large is sending most of that money back home, um, they're not going to complain about bad working conditions. And often they don't know how to, they wouldn't know to go to a lawyer or they wouldn't know, you know, where to turn if they're being abused or if they're not being paid. And unfortunately, there are examples of this, um, you know, throughout the internet. Uh, BuzzFeed has done a great job of documenting a lot of these abuses, uh, and especially in the farm workers, 
uh, who the H-2A employers are supposed to provide housing. They're supposed to provide food. Uh, they're supposed to pay these people regular wages at a regular interval. And they've consistently found that that doesn't happen and that really uh, it's it's just a form of indentured servitude at the end of the day. Right. And I, it's, I know it's, it'd probably be difficult to persuade businesses to raise uh, wages or, you know, to start updating their farming technology to more kind of automated technology instead of relying on migrant um, low-skilled labor. But can, uh, ask you, Preston, can Congress do anything about that kind of mandating that these farms raise wages and kind of transition away from importing uh, foreign cheap labor? Or do you think that's pretty hard or pretty difficult to do that? No, I think it's entirely possible. Um, and it's actually, it's interesting you bring up that point. I'm writing an op-ed about this right now is that the federal government already subsidizes about $22 billion a year just in farm subsidies. And almost 40% of all farmers in the United States get some sort of subsidy or check from the federal government every single year. So there's an infrastructure in place to provide farmers with subsidies of any kind, whether it be straight up checks for them to cover some of their overhead. Um, we already do that for farmers, for instance, that have been affected by the trade war. The government actually sends them checks to recover mm-hmm. their lost profits from, you know, China not buying soybeans and things like that. But so that infrastructure already exists. What is needed is that we need someone in Congress to have the political courage to say, why are we relying on essentially a medieval way of picking crops for fruits and vegetables, why don't we try to invest in automation technology that will put, not only will, you know, free the farmers themselves from, from having to look for labor every season, which is already a headache for them. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, they would, they wouldn't have to worry about that. They would save money in the long run by having this technology on their farms. Um, in the same way that, Right now, most of our wheat, corn, soybeans, you know, some of these more, these grain products, they've already embraced automation. And there are hardly any, you know, there's hardly any hand picking of wheat anymore. There's hardly any hand picking of corn. You know, these are things, these are crops that we've harvested using automation for over a decade. And so the fact that we haven't been able to bring that technology to people who are picking strawberries or picking tomatoes, um, is really an indictment on us as a country that we haven't looked into that. And there's, it's certainly, you know, not for lack of trying. Um, I think it just takes the political courage to do so. Yeah, Preston, kind of building on what you're, on what you're saying there, going kind of back over to the, uh, kind of the business side of this, that's, that's becoming more and more dominated by foreign workers as well. In fact, we just finished a, a study here at FAIR showing that the, STEM jobs, you know, more high-tech jobs in science, technology, education, mathematics are more and more going to uh, temporary foreign laborers as well. In fact, we found that uh, since 2006, there are actually fewer U.S. citizens pursuing graduate degrees in science and engineering now than there were in 2006, but the number of temporary visa holders pursuing STEM degrees in the U.S. has increased by 60%. So this isn't this is this is kind of beginning to impact every major industry in the United States and what it really comes back to is just abusing a temporary labor program that was not even intended to be a permanent thing. When these programs were originally envisioned, they were supposed to be something temporary 
that fill the gap in a time of need. For example, World War One, World War Two, times when our uh, labor forces were drastically reduced. But what they've instead been turned into is something that big businesses and corporations use to deflate wages. Oh, we don't want to have to increase price. We don't want to have to pay a market wage. Therefore, we're going to petition for more cheap labor. That way we don't we can essentially undercut the market. So what you have is just an abuse of a program and really one that that probably needs reforms at some of the most fundamental levels in order to prevent that from happening in the future. Yeah, and you bring up a great point with with the STEM jobs and STEM opportunities in this country. Uh, it's it's really been taken over um, in many cases by the H one B visa, which is um, originally was for very skilled non immigrants to come over and and work temporarily in the United States um, for technology companies, and then they would leave. But in the early 90s, they actually changed the way that this visa works. So these guest workers, before they were never able to adjust their status and they were never able to pursue citizenship. Now, because of dual intent laws, they're able to. And so what has happened is that there's become an enormous amount of particularly nationals from India and China who come over on the H-1B visa and then immediately declare their intent to naturalize down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has led to really a swelling of, of the, of the immigrant visa backlog. Um, and it's something that really no one has been able, you know, rather had the, the courage to figure out, uh, aside from the typical, Oh, well, let's just give them all green cards and move on. Um, but that at the end of the day, that doesn't solve the issue, which is that you took a temporary visa program and essentially made it a de facto, uh, green card application. Yeah. Right. And, and there's really not a shortage of Americans who want to work in the STEM field. In fact, there was a study recently done by the Center for Immigration Studies that showed that roughly only one-third of all native-born Americans with a STEM degree hold a job in their field. In other words, they're go- they're getting an education, some, but then going on and working in a different field for some reason, either because the jobs aren't available, because they're all going to guest workers, or because those fields have been, their wages have been depressed to the point that it's no longer worth it. And for example, you can work in a finance field which is non-STEM with you know a lot of the same educational background and make considerably more money now than if you were a computer programmer, someone who worked as a tech at a scientific uh, firm or something. And that, again, just goes back to the depressing of wages through the abuse of the temporary migrant guest worker programs. I think it's also important to note that there is this general assumption that an H-1B visa holder is someone who's really high skilled and that has some type of skill set that you know, um, Americans won't have. But data shows that fewer than half, 46% of fiscal year 2021's H-1B petitions have advanced degrees from American universities. So you would think that number would be much higher if these are really high skilled uh, individuals from you know, outside of our country, but I mean, less than half have advanced degrees from an American university. And I, you know, that number is probably a little bit lower because people can get, uh, you know, an advanced degree from a uh, university outside of America, but still, I mean, less than half, you would think that 
the number would be much higher, to say the least. And that's the biggest misconception with the H-1B is that it's for truly exceptional talent. It's really not. It's um, overwhelmingly very average talent and and very comparable to a to an average American coming out of college. And that's kind of the issue is that no one is really pushing to reform the H-1B to its original purpose, which is to attract exceptional talent from outside the United States, truly talent that is, that can't be produced here for whatever reason. Um, and now this visa is essentially just adding in hundreds of thousands of extra college graduates every year and expecting Americans to have to compete with them uh, for these STEM jobs. And like both of you have brought up, a lot of times Americans just get discouraged and they're saying, why would I try to compete against a worker with who is going to be paid 30% less than I am? There, you know, there's no way you can expect them to compete, to compete with that in the job market. Now, couldn't President Trump take immediate action to halt kind of all these guest worker programs? I mean, I know it's, you know, that'd be kind of insane to do a complete shutoff, but I believe under Title 8, Section uh, 1182F, it says that the president has the authority to suspend the entry of aliens or any class of aliens in the U.S. that would be detrimental to the interests of the country. So couldn't he technically kind of do something under this code in, in terms of suspending at least temporarily uh, these guest worker programs? He certainly could. Uh, the issue becomes, would it stand up in court? Uh, the government would have to argue in that case why the H-1B or the H-2B or the H-2A or any of these classes, these visa classes are detrimental to the United States. And, and I have a feeling that would be very difficult for the government to prove in court and for it to be upheld. I think, uh, again, we come back to this almost every week when we talk about these issues, is that Congress has to be the one to act. And Congress has to come to some sort of understanding with what we're going to do with these programs moving forward. These are outdated programs that have really outlived their purpose. And we are working with guest worker programs that were installed in the 90s. And here we are in 2020. And the situation on the ground, the situation with our labor force is incredibly different than it was when these programs were put in place. And uh, unfortunately, Congress has been you know, too complacent with just kicking the can down the road and pretending like these issues don't exist, uh, when in fact they're having a very real detrimental effect on American wages and on American opportunities. Right. And, and I think that you're right in the sense that Congress is definitely going to be the one that needs to enact these changes and reforms to the guest worker programs. I don't think the president, I mean, as much as I'd like to, you know, have a bunch of faith in him administration, I mean, it's you know, up to the courts to decide whether, you know, his argument is warranted or not. And another thing that, you know, I, I think that needs to be discussed a little bit is, you know, with a lot of these guest workers, you know, coming in in the tens of thousands amid this COVID-19 outbreak, if our own government and our medical professionals can't effectively screen our own citizens, shouldn't there be concerns over screening these guest workers? I mean, you've seen in the news every single day, there's shortages of uh, medical professionals, ventilators, resources, and that's for our own people. But if, if we keep at least attempting to increase the number of guest workers in our country annually with this COVID-19 outbreak still going on, I mean, I, I think that there are legitimate health concerns that need to be considered. Yeah. And looking, looking uh, in the future now, of course, there's a number of travel restrictions in place right now. And some of the, you know, the guest worker programs have been scaled back. But looking in the future, as Preston mentioned earlier, the vast majority 
of these technical guest workers are coming from places like India and China. And as we've learned over the last few weeks, China has not been very forthcoming about the state of things in their country, especially in regards to health information. They withheld and hid and censored a lot of information about the uh, COVID-19 outbreak. And so how can we trust them in the future to send a large number of temporary workers and migrants towards the United States without knowing the state of their health, without knowing the, the state of the country they're coming from? So yeah, that just puts the onus more on the United States to increase health testing of migrants and to do a better job of looking into the backgrounds of those who are wanting to come here. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And I mean, these are these are issues that affect each of these programs. They all are, are different in who is able to come over. But at the end of the day, it's people coming in from outside the country, from from other countries that maybe don't have the same health infrastructure the U.S. does. And so as mm-hmm. we are continuing to battle, you know, the effects of the virus, uh, it, it may become prudent to, to slow these programs down. And I know that the State Department has stopped visa processing overseas um, for that exact reason. So this isn't some kind of fringe idea that stopping guest workers from coming in or even other classes of immigrants and non-immigrants from coming in is some sort of is some sort of crazy idea. Um, so, no, it's sorry. I was going to say it's not it's not unique to the United States either. Uh, a lot of countries are doing this. Right. In fact, the. The United States has a much more extensive guest worker program than most modern countries in the world. So this isn't just a unique idea that we need to be careful, especially in the middle of a pandemic, about who we let into our borders. But even beyond that, we have to be extremely careful in how we reprioritize things coming out of the pandemic. You know, We want to make sure that jobs go to Americans first, that the recovery is centric around the citizens who suffered during this COVID-19 that we can reanalyze afterwards and see, are there holes in our economies after that point where we need guest workers? This isn't a situation of, oh, we got to try to fill this cap. That cap is there to protect the American worker. To, you know, we're, right. we're supposed to try to stay under that, not meet some sort of goal. I think it's astonishing to see that in 2018, 93% of our H2A workers, the agricultural workers, came from Mexico solely. And so it, it's like, can we not find people in our own country to, you know, perhaps work in that same industry and can we not diversify these visas to other countries? And so I, I think, yeah, absolutely. As Spencer commented, these were initially intended for temporary worker shortages and not to, you know, remain in place for the foreseeable future. And so it's, we'd like to transition more to, you know, American workers and protect American wages and jobs and you know, not rely so much on the cheap foreign labor as we are now. Well, Matthew and Spencer, I think both of you have brought up fantastic points. And I think that's a as good a, a point to end on as any. It completely encapsulates, I think, what FAIR has has said about this issue and has, has researched about this issue for years. So, you know, that's all that we have for today. For our listeners at home, we hope that you've enjoyed today's episode on guest workers, and we hope that you learned something today. Uh, if your friends want to know where they can find this podcast, tell them that we are available anywhere podcasts are found, including on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can also visit our website, fairus.org, and find us uh, on Twitter at Fair Immigration. Uh, we hope everyone listening continues to stay safe throughout these strange times. Until next time, this is Understanding Immigration presented by Fair.